On today's podcast, Dina Cavan will talk about her beloved son, Everett, who was diagnosed with a rhabdoid tumor in his liver when he was just six months old in October of 2014. Even though Rhett, as he was known as, fought bravely for the next few months, his cancer had metastasized to his lungs, and he passed away on February 22nd of 2015, just five days before he was to turn 10 months old. Dina will also discuss the nonprofit that she and her husband Jim started in Rhett's honor and memory called Rhett's Roost. Dina and Jim somehow found the strength to start their nonprofit just months after Rhett's passing. And what they have done to honor the memory of Rhett and his life is to put together both bereaved family retreats and survivor retreats. For the bereaved families, these retreats allow the families to come together and engage in activities which help them through the most difficult times after their child passes away, with empathy being the main goal. And the word joyful is the main goal for the retreats which focus on survivorship. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It is now my pleasure to welcome Dina Cavan to my podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Mark. Now, you and your husband, Jim, begin your unexpected journey into the world of pediatric cancer at the end of October 2014. Your son was uh, six months and I think a day um, his name is Everett, but Red is how he was called, Red being short for Everett, and he had a stomach bug. Did you think the normal thoughts that his stomach bug was more or less a routine thing and that it would be taken care of? Oh, of course. Yeah, he was he was a perfectly healthy baby in our eyes. Um, I felt very lucky uh that he was he was eating well and hitting all those baby milestones, um, no issues at all, um, other than having a really long birth with him. I don't, I'm not sure Rhett really uh, wanted to be, be in this world for too long. Um, he he, he um, took, you know, 36 hours to decide to make his appearance. Um, <laughs> and when he did, uh, you know, he was a strong, robust little baby. Um, lots of smiles early on, and he seemed perfectly healthy. So that particular day, uh, we had gone out for a little hike. We like to go. We like to go for a hike with our dog, and I would strap him on uh, a little backpack. Um, and um, you know, he was jostled around a lot on those hikes. And we got home, and uh, immediately uh, he vomited. And I didn't really think much of it, but he did seem um, unusually fussy. And being a new parent, I decided, let's call the pediatrician. And um, we went to our regular pediatrician in our town that had been witness to his birth. And um, 
And, you know, we walked in that office and, and I sat down, not really expecting much other than her to tell me your baby has a little virus and you're just going to have to wait it out. Um, but instead, um, she asked, uh, to, for me to nurse him and she felt his tummy while, while she was, I was nursing him and immediately without question, which is somewhat unusual in the childhood cancer world, um, the pediatrician said, you know what, something's not quite right. And I'd like you to go to the hospital across the street and get an ultrasound of his liver. Um, and so when we did that, uh, Jim came right over um, because that was kind of unusual, an unusual uh, request. And um, still, you know, weren't really that all that worried quite yet. Um, but the, you know, the ultrasound tech kind of was a little quiet and um, didn't give us any information, but uh, other than to go back over to the pediatrician's office after the, the scan. And um, we went there. And um, unfortunately, at that, you know, at that moment is when she told us that there was a large mass on his liver. Um, I knew nothing of childhood cancer at that point, as many parents um, are not aware um, exactly how um, how it, how it happens to quite a lot of, of families. Actually, you know, you know the statistics, I'm sure. Um, but you know, we were thinking it was something benign, something that could be addressed. Um, but she did advise us to go to Boston Children's Hospital the next day. So you go to the Boston Children's Hospital the next day, which is, of course, the best place to go. And thankfully, at the time, you were told right away, as doesn't happen that often, uh, when, when a child goes to the pediatrician for something. When did you get the diagnosis that he had a malignant rhabdoid tumor in his liver? So, so when we went down there, you know, they, they put you through so many tests and, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact, um, you know, how many days it took, but I believe within a day or two, he was in for a biopsy. Um, and, uh, you know, at first we were thinking maybe it was something a little more common. Um, and uh, so we were just expecting a result that would indicate that there would be some sort of surgery or tr quick treatment and things would be better. Um, I, I didn't realize that there's this whole world of um, very advanced cancer diagnoses for children, a very rare diagnoses. Um, and so uh, I think it actually took almost a week to get the final um, diagnosis, which was the malignant rhabdoid tumor, an extra renal malignant rhabdoid tumor or MRT. Uh, and um, this diagnosis for children under two or under 18 months, at least, is, is very dire. And um, the prognosis, you know, is, uh, you know, a survival rate of, you know, 10 to 20 percent um, and that there are only about 30 cases in the U.S. a year. Um, there is another type of cancer that is similar in the brain called ATRT, which is a little bit more well known. So atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor, and that is in the brain and, and nervous or spinal cord, probably. Um, and, uh, so when we started doing the research, um, it, you know, of course they tell you not to Google or they say, maybe, maybe don't Google this. Uh, 
And that is, uh, you know, my husband and I are both, you know, not going to just sit back and not do the research. So um, unfortunately, when we started digging deeper, it started getting more and more frightening uh, what was ahead of us with our son. Now, you mentioned that there were 30 of these diagnoses a year until um, I started reading what you had written me in, in doing research, I didn't even realize uh, that there was a, any type of liver cancer for for children. I had no idea about that. Now, did Rhett's oncologist tell you uh, right away that, that the prognosis was not a good one, or was this based on the research that that you and Jim did on the internet? Yeah, so um, so I remember being in that room. There were several oncologists. There was, you know, our social worker was there as well, and um, you know, it was very intimidating and scary uh, to be in a room like that uh, to hear from these doctors because they were being very serious, um, and they were telling us we were going to be admitted and we were going to start treatment right away. And of course, this is the scariest thing any parent could possibly hear about their seeming healthy child. And um, so it was it was really, really difficult. And um, the first night we got put in a room and it was pretty crowded on the on the sixth floor of Boston Children's at that point. And so our room was not one of the best ones. Um, And they you know, there was just like a little window seat for a parent to sleep on and then a crib for Rhett. And we, we, you know, Normally, we I would get in bed with him to nurse him, and that was not possible in the crib. So um, we were very uh, unsure about what was about to happen. Uh, luckily, we were transferred into a nicer room the next day, thank goodness. Um, and from that point on, um, we really did feel such amazing support from Boston Children's, uh, particularly, you know, the sixth floor, the oncology floor in, in Boston Children's Hospital. Um, and, uh, you know, we had places where I, I could lay down and nurse him and then also for Jim to be able to stay there as well. You know, I hear these horror stories of during the pandemic, having a child with cancer and having only one parent be allowed to be there. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, my husband could could be there with us and that we were able to both um, put our jobs on hold uh, so that we could be with our son, our only child, our son um, during that time. So it was it was very scary time for sure. I can well imagine now. How long was Rhett at Children's Hospital and what type of treatment did he receive there? So because he's so young, the only type of treatment he could receive at that point was chemotherapy. Um, we were we were working towards potentially a stem cell transplant. Um, but at that point, it was just we were going to try um, the the actually the protocol was um, for a Wilms tumor, I believe. Um, they they don't um, really have a specific pro- protocol for MRT because it, it is rare. 
Uh, and even, even with the Wilms tumor, the chemotherapy drugs they were using were decades old. And I'm sure you've heard that before, that the treatments are not progressing as quickly as adult cancer treatment is. Um, but you know, we were told all, all of the, all of the side effects and all that stuff. And you sign off your name and, you know, your son's probably going to be sterile. He might have hearing loss and learning disabilities and all these things that I'm like, Oh, you know, it was just heartbreaking. Um, and, and so we, you know, we started that chemotherapy right away. Uh, we went through three cycles and he had another scan and they actually saw almost, um, almost a hundred percent necrosis, which means the, the dying off of the cancer cells, uh, in his tumor in his liver. Um, unfortunately they also started to notice, and at this point it had been localized in that tumor, but they started to notice the metastases that were growing in his lungs. Uh, and that's a very common trajectory for MRT, um, to go to the lungs, um, and uh, so it was very small um, amount. So they, you know, they were like, well, it looks like um, we could potentially have uh, the surgery to remove the, the tumor in the liver. Um, it was a really risky surgery. And um, we had an excellent surgeon that was familiar with liver surgeries in children. Um, and uh, so we had that surgery date set on um, December 23rd of 2014. Uh, and it was a 16 hour surgery that he went through um, where they actually removed his entire liver. They weren't planning on it, but they had to remove the entire liver um, and then um, resect the tumor from that on the outside of his body. And then they had about 10 to 15% left healthy tumor, health, healthy liver that they were able to um, put back into his body with the hopes that it would regenerate. It grows like livers are able to regenerate. So, um, so that was the hope. And um, he made it through the surgery at about 9 PM. Dr. Kim came out, showed us some, some images of organs and, um, and uh, we were just so relieved that he had made it through that day. Um, he had a little bit of a setback on Christmas Day. So, you know, Christmas Christmas is always a tough time for us. Um, and he had to go back into surgery to clear an artery. They weren't actually able to clear it all the way. And so they did their best. Um, but his recovery from surgery was really hard. And because of it was the liver that was trying to heal, um, Dr. Kim, the surgeon, recommended that we not um, add on chemotherapy at that point, um, that we wait until his liver numbers were looking really good before so that he could handle uh, the chemotherapy. And um, so that waiting period during that time was when the cancer just started popping up all over um, in his lungs, in his abdomen. Uh, and it was, I think they allowed us to do one more cycle of chemotherapy after he had gotten to a certain point and um, he handled it okay, but they, they took another scan. They just said, it's still just growing out of control. So we can't, we can't, there's no other options for him here. Um, I rushed home and, you know, we brought him home and um, I did find a clinical trial at St. Jude's hospital uh, and they accepted us amazingly um, and flew us down there uh, within, you know, under a week, a week's time. And, uh, you know, on the way down there, it was a really hard journey for Rhett. 
um, to fly on the plane. And, and uh, there was like an ice storm when we arrived. So the plane was stuck on the runway and they had to get an ambulance to get us off. Um, you know, Memphis isn't used to ice storms on their, at their airports. Um, and uh, so we got to St. Jude and they did a scan the, se- the next day and they said, you know what, this is just too much cancer. Um, and we were only there three days and they sent us back to our home in Dover, New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, that was the his final days during that time at our house. So certainly, a, a, obviously, a, a terrible situation for all of you now. And of course, after fighting for nearly four months uh, and only living uh, five days short of 10 months total. Yeah. Red passed away on February 22nd of 2015. I'm curious to know, after such a difficult and sad experience, how both you and Jim had the strength to begin to create your Rets Roost nonprofit so shortly after Rets passing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and something I wonder myself when I look back, for sure. Uh, you know, so, you know, just Rhett, Rhett's death, you know, for us, it was, um, it was hard, you know, so hard. But at the same time, there was, there was all this beauty around it, too, and, and support and love. And, you know, um, the day of his death, all of uh, his family was able to fly in. So he has some family in the Midwest. Uh, and they were able to fly in and say their goodbyes. And it was pretty much right after they all left. It's about 5 p.m. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just Jim and I in our bedroom. We, we had a hospice nurse coming and going who was wonderful. But we were alone at that point. And um, that's when he took his last breaths. And, uh, you know, it was it was amazing because um, we did announce it the next day on, on social media. As some people are, are public about those things. We were, um, you know, and the people started sending us all their, these images of the sunset, which he passed at about 520 on uh, 222. Um, and um, it was just a gorgeous sunset that night. So we got all these images of sunsets sent our way. And that made us feel like he was welcome to wherever he, wherever you go after you die, whatever you believe, um, something, someone was welcoming him um, with that sunset. So really, really um, a special day for us. And we look at it now as we go through the anniversaries as, um, as, you know, a, a huge turning point in our life. Um, and it made us realize how precious um, our time with our families is, no matter how long you have, you know. Um, and and with that, you know, I felt like with the support from our community, all the people that were sending us loving messages um, and and even sending us money. So we had a GoFundMe, of course. So before he passed, we had started that and that was growing and it grew even more after he died. Um, and so we had, we were sitting on this money, um, that we didn't need for medical costs. Like a lot of families do. We, we were lucky to have, um, good insurance in place. Um, and, um, 
So we had this, this, this fund, this GoFundMe, and uh, we were like, what are we going to do with this? We got to either donate it to, um, to Childhood Cancer and non- another nonprofit or whatever. Um, I, at the time, was working toward a PhD at UNH. Uh, it was actually an environmental sustainability, so nothing to do with like nonprofit management or um, or, or working with families at all. Um, I was working with the environment basically, uh, and you know, I, I didn't I didn't feel like I could go back. Um, I felt like I had I had um, you know hit this once once Rhett got diagnosed. It was like my life is going to be totally different now. It's not my passion anymore. And what can I do with my life? Um, and this money was there. So we, we use that GoFundMe, um, to, um, create our, our first, um, initial retreats. And those took place just six months after Rhett died. Like I said, I look back now and wonder, uh, what, what was I thinking um, <laughs> to, to try to do something so ambitious right away? Um, I know now looking back and after doing a lot of grief education and grief work myself, that it isn't ideal to jump into a big project like that uh, right away. But we were lucky that things turned out in our, you know, turned out well as they as well as they did. Um, we held uh, our first retreat, and they were for families who had a child transitioning off of cancer treatment. So, um, so they were, you know, kids that were um, looking to move on and bring joy back into their lives and do something fun and not think about the hospital and all the treatments and to meet other families that were on the same path. Uh, and we had five families attend a retreat in Western Massachusetts um, our first one. And it really was beautiful. It was, it was, um, it was a wonderful time for all of them. And I'm still in touch with all of them as well, which is really nice. Um, and, uh, we met some amazing families and I'm not sure like how I saw these kids who were like done with treatment and I was able to smile and be happy through the whole thing. Um, you know, but I somehow, uh, put my grief on hold, for those moments so that I could um, be present with these other cancer families. And that um, felt so good afterwards that I wanted to do it again. And, um, and that's, that's how it all started. Now, as we do transition now into your Retz Roost nonprofit, my first question would be, how did you come up with the concept of retreats as what you wanted to do? Sure. So so I have um, practiced yoga since 2000. Um, that has been a huge part of my life. I was teaching yoga long before Rhett was even born. Um, and the philosophy of yoga was what got me through my experience, the philosophy and also the, the practices. So um, breathing practices, mindfulness, meditation, living in the moment, and um, and having gratitude and acceptance, all these things um, helped me to get through my traumatic experience with my child's cancer. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to share some of those techniques with these other families um, and and different different types of types of therapies too that I I wasn't I was I'm not I'm not um, trained to give, but um, I was also you know working on journaling and. 
um, and not as much art and music therapy. Those those aren't necessarily my wheelhouse, but I knew how important they were, especially for children. Uh, and um, so I think I had, you know, I had attended retreats before and um, another, another big part of our retreats was like nutritious food and like feeding the body good food to give you the energy to get through some of these really difficult moments. Uh, and, and so I wanted to share some of these uh, modalities with other families. Uh, and that's why I thought, you know, bringing people together um, you know, the other thing, bringing people together, like the peer connection, um, I felt like finding other families that were similar to me, uh, really helped me to get through, uh, what, what I, what I was going through. And so the peer connections that we create at our retreats, um, I just saw this as a way to really help, um, the, the, you know, give back to the cancer community, um, and, you know, I, we could have just given the money to research, but I, I wanted something for me to do. I needed I needed to act. And um, so this felt like a, an action I could take to bring people together to plan something, an event like this um, and to and to share some of the, the training that I had had that had helped me uh, in my journey. Now, you have both a mission and a vision for Rhett's Roost. Can you talk about both? Yeah, sure. So we've just revised or we just uh, this spring uh, revised our mission statement. Uh, we got together with um, our board of directors and came up with this new one, which I think is is quite beautiful. Um, our mission is to be a beacon of healing for families impacted by childhood cancer, offering holistic retreats that create connection, nurture hope, and honor the power of grief and love. And um, so, so that, you know, our mission is, is very um, specific to, you know, both families that are, um, have children surviving cancer and those that are grieving the loss of their child to cancer. And um, over the years, we've gotten more and um, more, um, into the bereavement aspect of things, um, particularly because that's what I know best. Um, but, uh, you know, so we wanted to include that grief part because a lot of times um, there'll be uh, things like camps out there for or for families and um, they focus a lot on the kids with cancer. And then often, even when they get off treatment, it's like they don't qualify anymore, Right. So we wanted something that was going to carry on beyond the cancer treatment. Um, and because we know that even families that have a child that success, successfully gets through their treatment, that there's so much anxiety and stress and side effects to deal with afterwards as well. Uh, and we wanted there to be support for those families. And then as well for the ones who lose their child, um, we felt like it was so important um, to, to create this community of grieving families, you know, in my town in particular, it was very hard to find, um, bereaved parents. And, you know, I did find one that I really connected well with, and that was a wonderful connection. Um, but their loss was a sudden loss and, uh, and mine was a loss by sickness. And, and those two types of loss are very different. So the idea of bringing together families that are all grieving the loss of a child to cancer is very important to me and to, um, and to the families I've met. 
um, our vision, and, and you know, the vision is is slightly different. It's sort of like the what you would see if if your mission were completed. You know, if you actually achieved your mission, what would the vision be? And our vision is a community of families navigating a path toward healing and recreating joy in their lives. Um, and you know, we don't expect families to come to one of our retreats and then be completely healed. <laughs> Uh, we know that is not um, that's not possible, but um, but we do feel like the, it, we can set them onto that path of finding those ways that help them feel better during moments of stress, anxiety, grief, um, all those traumatic emotions that continue to come up year after year for families. Uh, that have been through this experience. Um, so um, creating a community is our number one goal. Um, and and then offering them these therapeutic modalities, these self-care, um, things that aren't expensive, that you don't necessarily have to pay for, or things that don't take a lot of time, like you know, a five minute little breathing exercise, you know, um, these things can really help uh, once you have these tools in your little toolbox. Now, you have two distinct, and you've touched on both programs, which encompass these retreats. You've also, you, you, you've already touched a bit on the uh, first two events that you had in 2015, were, which were your positive healing survivor retreats. Yes. And you use the word joyful as the word that would describe this form of retreat. Can you maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so what we what we offer the retreats the the schedules are sometimes jam packed. Um, I'll I'll let you know, Mark. I'm a I got a Type A personality. I like my my schedules and and all my things, all my ducks in a row. Um, so, you know, I think that has helped me be be successful in this venture. But also, um, you know, what it what it does is it we offer so many different things at the retreats um, for the families and. Uh, you know, I think what we, what, especially for our survivor families, um, the joyful part is really um, where we strive, what, where we strive most is, is to achieve um, these moments of joy over the course of the weekend. And um, for one example, I will um, give a little plug for an, a group we, we work with um, called Sages Entertainment, and they, they come to our retreats. Um, they've been coming every time this year, actually, they've been at our retreats and they usually do some sort of like a STEM project. So science, technology, engineering, math. This week, we actually had them come and they did, um, a robot petting zoo, which the kids just love. And they're all, you know, laughing and giggling at this little puppy robot, you know, doing things. But after the robot petting zoo, they, um, Put, they put on this foam party and the foam party is this huge cannon that shoots out um, baby soap and glycerin. So it's just bubbles everywhere and it forms this huge, um, you know, massive cloud of foam that the kids just play in and they play music. Um, so, you know, something like that is where I am just in awe at the, like the, the exuberance and the joy that, um, comes from the experience of even the parents jumping around in this big, um, massive foam. Um, but, you know, we also, 
you know, so there's like the joyful side for sure. But we also um, take time to to honor um, to honor what these families have been through through their experience through their either their experience with cancer treatment or with their loss, and we allow them to share um, with each other but also to be listeners. So when we first meet, the first night of our retreat, we take time to share in a circle. And part of that is being the listener as well. And so we really encourage um, people to not only share what they went through with each other, but it's not like a therapist um, patient sort of relationship. It's like you're sharing with peers. So you're also going to be the listener and um, and so we encourage that, especially with the parents in particular. Um, and then, you know, we also offer these self-care techniques that help to mitigate the emotional burden that families that have a child with cancer all carry. And um, and like we said, we initiate those long-lasting peer connections. But for the kids, you know, that that, you know, that stuff with Sages Entertainment, we also had um some mindful, mindful martial arts um, teachers come and kids yoga. We always have some type of real animal interaction like horseback riding or um, the barn babies petting zoo was also amazing. Barn babies was the cutest thing ever. Um, And nature-based learning, art and music therapy. Uh, So, you know, so it's, so it's both joyful and reflective at the same time. Uh, And the kids don't necessarily notice the reflective part, but they're doing it right. Like they, they're, um, they're doing the therapies. It's, it's indirect when you do it with children, you know, you ask them to sort of put some color on a piece of paper and that color, you know, might represent an emotion or something like that, but we're not asking them to relive uh, the experiences they went through. Whereas with the parents, we go a little bit deeper like that. And we do talk about some of the more difficult stuff. Um, and we have, you know, we, we let them get a massage and to, and to get some, um, some Reiki or other type of energy work. And um, so there, you know, and do some journaling, things like that. Now, speaking of difficult, in 2016, you started your next retreat, which is known as the Open to Healing Retreat. That is for bereaved families. The word that you use to describe this retreat is empathy. Please yeah. talk about this retreat. Yeah, so so we do. We have those two types of retreats. The Positively Healing is for the families with survivors. And then the Open to Healing retreats are those for uh, families that have lost their child. And, and we call them Open to Healing because um, it does require, you know, when you're grieving a child, um, which is the worst possible grief um, you could experience, um, <clears throat> you you need to be open to try the healing modalities, right? So if you were to, you know, sometimes we'll get, um, you know, a family come and the mom signed up the family, right? <laughs> and the dad comes and, and you know, I won't, I won't, I don't want to gender stereotype here, but, you know, say there's a dad and he's not really super excited about coming to talk about their child that died. Um, and that does happen in certain cases. And so, um, you know, we are, we are obviously everything at our retreat is optional, but we do encourage people to try to open up and, and with that opening up, um, 
around others, you feel the empathy because they are trying, you know, they're scared to, to, to talk and they worry that they're going to cry in front of you. And, and, um, you know, we just try to make this safe container for their grief. Um, and, and when, when they feel safe to open up, um, and share and to listen to others and be like, wow, yep, I went through that too. And that, that was the worst thing possible. And I can't believe I'm not alone anymore. Um, you know, to, to feel that empathy from others, um, and to, and to share it, you know, to be the receiver and the giver of empathy really is an amazing way to heal, um, grief and heal trauma. Um, so, so yeah, so empathy, joy, those are those, thank you for bringing those words up. Um, those are definitely, uh, two things that when we get our testimonials back from, from our surveys after our retreats that we do hear, um, those two words quite a bit. Well, that's, uh, certainly well-deserved from, from the people that, uh, come to the retreats. Now, you, you mentioned that the number of activities that you had, uh, for the, um, survivors, do the bereaved families also participate in similar activities uh, or, or at least are they offered uh, basically the same type of programs? Um, it is similar. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the, the bereaved families, um, particularly for the, the bereaved siblings. So young, you know, the, the kids that are the teens and the younger children um, are, you know, have gone through something where they see their parents just broken, you know, so sad. And, and, um, and they don't always understand why they have to suffer through this too. And, um, and they need a little joy in their life, right? Um, they need some fun. They need to be outdoors. They need, you know, to, to be able to create and to express themselves, um, and to make friends that also are, have lost another sibling. Um, in particular, you know, my daughter who, so we had Evie um, a year, a year and two weeks after Rhett died. And um, she, so she, I was pregnant with her at my first retreat ever. Um, we found out she was a girl at that retreat. They called us up uh, and we named her Everly after her brother Everett. And we call her Evie. Uh, she's now six. So she has been at um, every retreat uh, since 2016. Since she was born, she was three months old um, at our first grief retreat. Um, and I bring her along with me and she has learned over the years um, to connect with other um, either kids with cancer or bereaved siblings or the or the siblings of the kids with cancer. Um, she feels like she, you know, she's, she can bring happiness and joy to these kids. And I see it with her. Um, so, you know, it's really a beautiful thing to watch children, uh, who have, who have gone through, you know, an adverse childhood experience. So an ACE is what they call it. Um, so these kids who have watched their, their sibling get sick and die, um, you know, it's just, it's so traumatic for them that they, they need to, the way for them to heal is, is to, um, not really talk about it as much as parents do, um, not necessarily, you know, have, have those conversations, but to express themselves through joyful experiences. And, um, and that's what we've tried to do with, um, with both the bereaved siblings and, um, and the kids that come, uh, with their, with their 
sibling that has cancer. And then, you know, um, but for the adults, I would say the program is slightly different, uh, you know, from grief retreat to, to uh, survivor retreat, um, where in the survivor retreats, we're focus- focusing a lot on stress and anxiety um, and, and worry and depression and, and getting themselves back to a place where they feel healthy in their life again. Um, and with the grief families, there is more time to honor their child and to, and to do some activities like, um, we create these beautiful necklace pendants with the child's, uh, photo in them. Um, and, um, you know, we put out luminary bags and we do, um, we do honor them with a little altar, um, at our, at our retreats as well. So we put an altar with their pictures and any, we invite the families to put any of their little toys or clothes or, or something that reminds them of their child there. So there's, there's a little, a little, um, bit more of, of, uh, reflecting sad, um, you know, let's, let's honor these children and, and be sad because it's okay to be sad. Um, whereas with the positively healing retreats, it's a little bit, a little bit different. Both retreats, uh, I would guess, uh, emphasize individual and group therapy as you've, as you've mentioned, my question would be at the beginning, right. You know, at, at the, at the first say group talk, and you already mentioned the, um, uh, anxiety, I guess that that men would have to talk. But do you notice in general that it takes a while for people to open up at all or even talk? And does that, as the retreat, as the days go on, does that seem to loosen up? And is there much more of an engagement uh, with 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 you and, and with the families and with the families uh, uh, engaging with each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so we, we always start that first night with those sharing circles and, and those do really help, um, for the parents to be, you know, in a room together and just to hear each, each other's story. Um, the, you know, the dads themselves, like sometimes they'll speak, sometimes they aren't ready. Um, but you know, overall we've, we've, we've seen, um, that by even the second day, both, Parents and young children feel very safe and connected. Um, you know, occasionally there'll be a dad who's still really, really shy, or even you know, moms usually they're usually the ones who sign up. Um, but you know, and and this, these retreats are not for everybody. You know, I will say that is that you know, um, this is not something that um, that is perfect, a, a good a good experience for everyone. Although we haven't you know, received any negative feedback in that way. Um, I do, I do think that it's best for the people who do like to talk about the experience to come. Um, but, you know, um, I, I will say my hardest group to work with is teenagers. Um, and um, they, they definitely um, do not necessarily want to be talking about this kind of stuff. And because I don't have formal training in, um, in, you know, working with therapy with, with teens, um, we've, we've invited a few people to join our programs that can help, um, like the center for grieving children in Maine, um, to try to get them engaged. But 
what we've noticed is that, you know, young children and adults, second day, they're good to go. The teenagers, it's almost like it's like the last day when they finally are like, okay, I like you guys, you know? So it's, it's um, the teenagers and, and some of the dads, I think, are, are, um, are always just a little hesitant to dip their toes into the work that we offer. And it is work. Uh, you know, in order to heal, you have to do the work and, and grief is work. And um, it's, it's a process. Uh, so, you know, to, to get them involved and, and talking and stuff with each other. Um, we do, we do have the individual set therapy sessions as well, but, um, with the group sessions, you know, we had one, I'll give you one example of a young teen who was, um, was quite amazing. She, um, lost her brother this past June, uh, to DIPG. And then she came to our retreat in July. Uh, with her mom and dad. Um, and we had the sharing circle um, and she wanted to sit in. So, you know, we're not going to say no um, to a child who wants to be a part of it. And she she sat through several of the stories and then it was her family's turn to speak. And, and mom, you know, the mom spoke most of the time. And then um, this young girl, she, she like interrupted her mother and said, I want to talk. And she told this beautiful story of the moment her brother died. I mean, it was like middle of the night. She was reading, they had her up. They had, she was reading him a story and then telling him he could go. And she's telling us the story and she's like 11 years old. So I'm um, just, you know, not quite a teen that maybe that's why she was willing to open up, but it was incredible. Um, you know, they've, uh, they had obviously done, um, you know, therapy with her along the way and they had had this anticipatory grief with that sort of diagnosis, the DIPG diagnosis. Sometimes you're, you're prepared, a little more prepared for what's going to happen. Um, and this girl just blew me away, um, how she opened up to the entire group of adults. And there were other two other teens in the room as well, who, um, who were kind of shocked by her, by her, um, willingness to speak. Um, it was, it was amazing. You mentioned this before that on your first retreat, I think you had five families and you maintain relationships with them afterwards. Now we, we go seven years uh, down the road. And I was reading on, on your website stories, I believe there were 26 families, including yours, that uh, you had talking about what happened to their children. 16 families, I believe, um, uh, lost a child. Ten of them survived. Now, with these families, do you tend to develop relationship with them after these retreats that have proven to be long lasting? So is this sort of the norm for you, I guess, is my question. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, one thing I, I didn't mention just a minute ago was that we keep our retreats intimate. So um, the most families we've had at a retreat is seven. They're usually around uh, four, fam four to five families. Um, and the, we keep them intimate so that people do feel safe sharing and have um, and have the opportunity to share. Right. Um, and, and when we do that, there, there becomes this, uh, you know, this nice relationship, um, that we cultivate with, um, my husband and my daughter and I, um, with each of these families, like we're able to really connect with each of them at our retreats. And, uh, so we have stayed in touch with most, if not all. And we actually, I know on our website, we ha only have the, that many up, but, you know, we've, we've actually, um, served, 
um, over 100 families with our retreats. Um, I have... I have also started these uh, virtual retreats for parents that maybe we can talk about real quick at the end. But um, these these type of when we were able to create the virtual retreat, I realized, wow, we can have um, grief support meetings online um, because a lot of families come from different places. So in the past, we've we've accepted families from all over the country. Um, we even had a family from the UK. We've had a couple from Canada, um, and. Um, you know, so it's hard to get back together, right? Because we're not doing this just in a local fashion, you know, a lo- local way. So um, these, uh, the grief group that we offer, um, we just do it once a month on the last Tuesday of the month um, at 8pm. And it's on zoom. Um, and from what I've heard for, from the parents that attend that, Um, they say that, you know, it's, it's just so much better than a group like compassionate friends, because for one, um, you know, compassionate friends has a lot of parents that lost adult children. Um, there's a lot of sudden death involved with, you know, there's, there's suicide and, and, um, and addiction and things like that. That's very common in, in those groups where they feel so, you know, you feel so different when you had like a four-year-old die of cancer, right? So, you know, um, the family, the parents that attend are like, this is the group that I need, you know, because these are all cancer parents here. Um, so, you know, I think, um, that's one way I've stayed in touch with people. Um, I will also, you know, Facebook has its good and bads, of course, but, um, it does help me to keep, um, you know, in touch with a lot of the families that have participated. And we usually send out a gift, um, around the holidays, um, each time. So, you know, there's, there's little touches that we have with these families. Um, and, um, you know, but we, we've run now. So I think it's, we just had our 24th retreat and, or no 25th retreat. And, um, we'll have one more in two weeks, uh, for this year. Um, and, and, and in those retreats, we've served over a hundred families um, that we, you know, try to keep in touch with if we can, if they want to, you know. I'm sure they do want to, and that's extraordinary to be able to keep in touch with with that many families. And I'm going to ask you the same question about the families. Now, when they leave, have you heard of them uh, staying in touch with one another and developing uh, important uh, relationships and friendships uh, that can go on for a long time? Yeah, definitely. Um, I see it and because of social media. I see it. I see. And they let me know sometimes like, oh, um, we got together, you know, that family that I just mentioned with the daughter who's 11 um, that spoke at our retreat. Um, they've already gotten together with one of the families at the retreat twice now um, that they met. Um, so, you know, that just fills my heart. I, you know, I obviously can't be best friends with hundreds of families. Um, but to know and to hear that these other families are connecting and creating friendships, um, and supporting each other is just really, it makes me feel like, um, what I'm doing is worthwhile. Um, like I said, it's like, we help these families, but it's such a short little, like one weekend thing. And I always wonder, you know, how we can, um, be more of a long-term support for everybody. Um, so, you know, we're trying our best. I'm trying, I'm trying to grow the organization. I'm trying to get to the point where we're hiring, um, 
you know, more staff and um, able to serve more families um, over the course of a year. So that's that's our three pl- three year plan um, with my current board, um, who has been really helpful and and wonderful along the way. So, um, so yeah, it's it's amazing to see um, the the relationships that form because of our work. Obviously, something that's very uh, meaningful to you and. Uh... It will be continuing, obviously, with all these retreats, I, I would suspect. Now, you did ask before, or you did mention before, that you have um, two virtual retreats I'm going to mention. Uh, the one that you had mentioned before, uh, you started in 2020, I believe. That's the Grief Love Retreat. Mm-hmm. And if I read it correctly, it's for parents who have lost a child under the age of 20. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? And what made you reach out for that uh, type of retreat? Yeah, so, well, uh, (laughs) COVID-19, that's basically what happened. So in March of 2020, um, when we all went into uh, lockdown, I had had retreats planned for that summer um, and wasn't sure what was going to happen to them. Uh, but I felt like it might be, uh, you know, once I saw things were starting to go virtual, um, all over the place, um, I was like, well, maybe we can try something, um, virtual for our families as well. So that, that spring we offered our first grief is love retreat. Um, it was about, I think we had about 10 parents participate. And again, we try to keep it intimate. So like, we don't want the zoom screen to be like, too full, but we, we don't really have to turn people away too often, I would say. Um, based on the amount of marketing I do, I get a good number of people that I can manage. But, um, you know, so we had um, that first retreat, I think it was in May of 2020. Um, and at that time, we also offered for children um, a teen uh, a teen retreat as well, which was um, three times on Zoom where we got together and we um, let them talk a little bit about their brother or sister that died. And then we also gave them, um, some sort of, um, uh, therapeutic technique to do, uh, either, you know, drawing or, or, um, or breathing or, you know, things like that, that they could do on virtual, in a virtual way. Uh, and, um, and, and those kind of worked well. Um, particularly the one for the parents. So um, I think it was in the second year of the pandemic in 2021, where we added the peace post-treatment retreat as well. And that's another virtual um, one for parents that um, have a child that's transitioning off treatment. Um, And I actually have an employee who manages our survivor retreat programs now. Um, I'm still a part of all of them, but she's um, she's been helping out, and she is a mom of a neuroblastoma neuroblastoma survivor. Um, she's been extremely helpful in uh, managing those. So, um, so yeah, so we're going to keep them going. We're going to keep the virtual ones going, particularly over the winter, is when when we um, we can't you know coming to Maine can sometimes be a little difficult in the winter. Uh, so, you know, we, we do most of our retreats during the nicer, nicer months here in new England. Now in that retreat that, that you just talked about the, uh, peace, the, uh, the virtual one, the peace post treatment retreat, yeah. you use, you, you, you have a, a yoga program mm-hmm. and it's for people who are suffering from anxiety and depression, or at least that's two of the things that they're suffering from 
that that you bring up. Would that be a surprise that those two um, uh, things that that these parents have are coming up as their survivors and not bere- uh, 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 having bereaved uh, thoughts? Yeah, so I, I think so. We offer I offer two different yoga classes. One is yoga for grief, and one is the um, we did offer yoga for um, depression and anxiety. And I'll be bringing that back as well. Um, you know, I think uh, both bereaved families and families of survivors can feel depression and anxiety. Um, and I wanted that one to be a little bit more open. Uh, whereas with the grief one, we do, we do a lot of, it's a little more ceremonial. We do some honoring of the child, of the child that died. Um, and, and I, I have opened that up as well to any type of grief. So sometimes we'll be, you know, someone will attend if they've lost a, a spouse or a parent. Um, we're okay with that for the yoga programs. Um, and so, you know, I think, what yoga can do to help people in both, you know, their grief their you know, or if they have um, difficulty with anxiety and depression um, is that yoga helps to move energy through us. It really does. And that's because of the breathing that goes along with it. Um, so I find that um, with these types of harder emotions, they like to get stuck and trapped and they sort of harden inside of us and they cause dis-ease. Um, disease can lead to disease, right? So um, if you are feeling anxious all the time, you know, that can turn into, a, you know, a medical ailment because of that anxiety. I mean, that's definitely proven. Um, but, you know, our bodies really do store these emotions and it's our job, it's our work to move that through us. And when you when you are breathing deeply, when you're, you know, consciously breathing and paying attention to the breath in the moment and you're moving at the same time, that's a really great way to move some of those emotions through you because they're, you know, they're just going to keep accumulating. So you got to make space for more anxiety to be coming, you know, you got to make space so that it doesn't accumulate and cause you dis-ease either mentally or physically. Now your retreats are, I believe, free to these families, Yes. but you, I am sure have many expenses that you have to pay for uh, to make these retreats possible and as successful as they are. Can you uh, tell us some of the ways that you fundraise to get money? And also, um, are there individual businesses uh, uh, businesses, and um, just people that want to help you with their own donations? Yeah. So um, you'll remember that GoFundMe account we started way back. And uh, you know, our community, um, we live on the seacoast of, well, we did live on the seacoast of New Hampshire, and now we live in southern Maine on the seacoast. Um, people are very generous and have and have heard our story and have seen Rhett's picture in the paper. And, oh, man, he was a beautiful baby, if I can just say that. I mean, his eyes uh, were from another world. And um, so, you know, I, I don't want to say that his looks helped to <laughs> fund these things, but, um, but, you know, not anymore, it, you know, maybe at the beginning, his little cute, his little cute face may, maybe brought in some dollars, but, um, you know, I, I think now people have seen, um, what we've done with his legacy and, um, feel, you know, 
like they can easily give up, you know, 20 to $50 a, a month to just support our work. Um, and so we do have a lot of individuals who still donate to us, who have donated to us since that GoFundMe account for years. And for that, we are so grateful. Um, since then, you know, since we've got our 501c3 status and all those things got in place, um, we also have been able to write grants um, and um, in particular, we have had great support from the Joy and Childhood Foundation, Dun Duncan's Foundation, um, uh, Golf Fights Cancer, um, Children's Oncology Camping Association or Care Camps. Um, and then um, the other uh, the other one, um, oh, I'm forgetting someone important. I can't remember. We are writing grants um, several times a year to fund our retreats. And um, and then the last thing is that we hold two, um, we're holding two events a year right now uh, as fundraisers. One of them is called the Superhero 5K, and we've held that since 2016. Uh, that's coming up this fall um, on October 22nd. And for your listeners, there is a virtual option as well if you're not in Maine or New Hampshire. Um, it's taking place this year in Agunquit. Agunquit is the town um, where our um, heart quarters is. We like to call it the heart quarters, where we hold some of our retreats, where my office is, and where I live. Um, and it's in a beautiful beach town uh, in Agunquit, um, which is just about an hour and a half from Boston, north of Boston, uh, a little south of Portland. And um, so we have the Superhero 5K coming up in October, and that's a really fun, family-friendly event. Um, there's a 5K and a fun run, and there's an after party with Magic, um, our good friend Sage's Entertainment again. And then um, our second fundraiser each year is, is something new. newer. We did this last year. We did a polar plunge in March. So we all jumped in the ocean in Maine um, in March, and it went really well. We're definitely doing that one again. Um, it's a perfect activity for middle of the winter doldrums. Um, people are like, I can't do it. I can't jump in the water. That's crazy. But you know, a lot of people turned out and did it. And even if they only got up to their knees and then ran out, you know, like they, they still helped us raise money. So, um, so that was, that was really fun. And we'll be re we'll be doing that one again. It's right around Rhett's anniversary, actually, that we like to hold it. Um, and, uh, you know, it just helps us get through those harder months, those dark months, you know, um, to have something fun to plan and to look forward to. Uh, but those are our two big fundraisers. And then we, you know, we just do some online campaigns, but again, the individual donations is what has held us up all these years and um, and I am I'm just so grateful for all the volunteers and the donors that um, help this organization thrive. How have the past nearly eight years changed you? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, um, like I said, I was I was kind of um, the geeky science PhD candidate for a while, and and then I had my son and. Um, you know, I didn't know becoming a mother could be so transformational, but having a being the mother of a child with cancer, um, it really turns your life upside down. And, um, you know, I think what, you know, what, what was so important was that I had that 
background in in the yoga and that that really did help me to see the gratitude amidst the grief you know um I, I always try to teach people that and I'm not one to promote like the toxic positivity of like just be happy you know just like you know force yourself to be happy and you'll end up being happy I, I really don't think that's that's um really truthful um but I do feel like once you see this very dark, dark side that you also start to notice the light more and you can sort of see the beauty in life and and hold it more preciously and 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 honor honor them all the moments that um that bring you joy and to to really take those moments and and um and to just bring light back into your heart where it's been dark. And um, so for me, it was like, I'm going to find this balance. Yoga is all about balance, um, the balance of opposites and this duality of life that we live in, the both and, you know, that there's contradictions all around us. And even though we went through this extreme grief and this extreme loss that no, you know, people who haven't experienced it just could never uh, uh, comprehend. Um I was able to sort of, and, and same with my husband, who I haven't talked about too much here, but like we were able to use our grief to, you know, bring good back into our life, to bring good to others. And um, and I just feel very lucky that my husband and I were able to stay on that similar path and to work together to create um, Rhett's Roost. And he also has uh, written an entire memoir about our experience that he's in the process of getting published. Um, and so that will be out soon. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful, you know, a beautiful story of what we went through. And I'm, I'm so glad to be able to share it here with you and for him to be able to share it through his amazing writing, um, which is his, his, um, you know, he's just a, such a talented writer. Um, so that so that you know we don't feel like we we have to hide and 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 hide our emotions and hide what we went through and not you know share the world share ret with the world right where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about ret's roost if they want to donate to you perhaps if they want to participate in the 5k on october 22nd um so if you can give us uh, that information that'd be great Sure. So um, you can find us at retsroost.org and that's ret without an H. So it's R-E-T-T-R-O-O-S-T.org. Um, and, um, you know, that's the best place to get all of our contact info and to also donate. So we have a donate button on our website. Um, you can give online or if you prefer to um, send a check, our address is on there as well. Um, make it out to Rhett's Roost. Um, and yes, if you are a runner at all, and, and no matter where you are in the world, um, you would like to join us for our virtual Superhero 5K, um, you can do that. And if you are close to Maine and you want to join us in person, it is sure to be a super fun day um, and um, lots of fun for kids. And it's the week before Halloween, so there's going to be tons of costumes. I mean, most people dress up like superheroes, but then because it's in October, we get a lot of Halloween costumes just any sort of costume um just you know the pictures are fantastic to see everybody dressed up and smiling so it's a really fun day if you can come out well as we come to the end of this podcast i'd like to first of all thank you very much for taking the time to come on my show 
talk about what has been a very um, difficult eight years for you, and you've taken the last seven of them uh, in honor and memory of of Rhett and created a nonprofit, which is really an intimate one, a very important one. And of, of the hundred or so families that you've seen, I'm sure they've all been uh, benefited greatly by um, coming to these retreats. And I want to congratulate you on what you've done, what you've accomplished. And I want to wish you the best of luck as time goes on. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been an honor to be here with you today. And you have a great day. Thank you. You too. It is always so sad to hear about what pediatric cancer can do to these kids, many of whom have had no chance to live even a fraction of the life that they all deserve. Certainly, Dina and Jim's son, Rhett, was a prime example of that. It is also very gratifying to see what these parents can do for others. And another prime example of this is the nonprofit Rhett's Roost. This is Mark Levine. And please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Tara Simpkins, who will talk about her son, Brennan, who amazingly survived four bone marrow transplants at 18 months after his diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia in 2009. Now 21 years old, Brennan is nearly 14 years past his original diagnosis, is attending the REACH program at the College of Charleston, and doing everything he can to live his best life possible.